just something that is part of my ethos of being an artist, which is that giving back kind of thing. And you handed me on a silver platter a very easy way to be a, a deeper part of this community. Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. So today we have a very special guest on the Good Tidings Podcast. He has won an Emmy Award, two Grammys, nominated for an Academy Award, a Tony, a Golden Globe. He could perform dozens of songs we've all known through this amazing musical career and has become even a greater giver and philanthropist. So welcome to the Good Tidings podcast, Kenny Loggins. Hi, good to be here. You know, although, you know, you're a little bit older than me, we kind of grew up in the same area. You were raised in Alhambra, California, and I in San Gabriel, which is just a few miles east of Los Angeles. How was life like growing up in Alhambra? It was perfect for me. And when, when I was a little kid, up to my seventh year, I was in Seattle. So my memories of Seattle, Washington are mostly rain. And those rare summer mornings where everything was crystal clear and, and you had, you really knew summer in, in Seattle. But my dad decided to take a transfer to California in order for his kids, I was the youngest of three, to be able to play outside more. And so, by moving to Alhambra, I became an athlete, and he taught me baseball and track. I was a hurdler. We, of course, played basketball all the time, and that was really a, a saving grace for me to be in the sunshine and, and just experience Southern California for all this. And, of course, that was my bridge to Hollywood when I decided to go into the music business. I was just down the street. It took a half an hour to get into Hollywood. Yeah, how interesting. And, and when did you first pick up a guitar, and did you actually write before you played the guitar? No, no, I didn't write until I played it. But I, I started writing while I was taking guitar lessons because I was learning simple, and it was a folk period back then. So folk, CDG, chords, you know, you could write 100 songs with those three chords. I started playing probably as a junior in high school, somewhere in there because of folk music. I had two big brothers, and my oldest big brother was into the Limelighters and the Kingston Trio and early folk music. And uh, I started to mess around then, but I really didn't drop in deeply on the guitar until the Beatles came along. But up to that point, I could do a little. And were the Beatles one of your biggest musical influences? Absolutely. Lennon McCartney, songwriting, Dylan, that ilk of of writers, Tim Harden, and then, of course, later on, James Taylor and Paul Simon and writers like that. Yeah, and I was, I was reading, and I assume this is true, that you actually wrote Danny's song as a senior in high school, and it's really, truly one of the most beautiful songs for me ever written. How did you come up with such a mature 
storytelling song at such a young age? Well, Danny's song is appropriately titled because it's it was written for and about my brother Danny, my big brother, and, and at, at the birth of that first child. And it just sort of poured out. It was inspired by an artist named Tim Harton, who wrote If I Were a Carpenter and a few other classics. And so it was sort of in that style. And the melody, the melodies that I had been uh, immersed in really helped birth that melodic structure of Danny's song. But the song, I mean, I didn't like file it down for days. It just came in that way. And then I... I used a lot of the lyrics. A lot of the lyrics were based on things my brother wrote to me in his letter. Oh, how interesting. And did you also write House at Pooh Corner in high school also? Yeah. Yeah, that was, I was supposed to be studying for finals. <laughs> and, and instead I decided to write a song. And it really was a song out of my subconscious because it was about growing up. It was about leaving that childhood period behind here I was about to graduate from high school, and it was I was very aware that my life was about to change. But we never really know at that age. We really don't quite understand in what way. And the song just sort of spoke to me that it was about Winnie the Pooh and that part of my life. Yeah. And now did people around you in high school, adults, teachers, were they aware at that time of your special gift as a musician at that young age? Not really. I played, I really started playing Danny's song in front of other people. I was, I was very shy and hiding in my room and writing was my way of self-expression. And I really didn't start playing that song for other people until I was probably the summer before college or the first year in college when I met some other players and we'd go to parties and they'd say, Kenny, play that song. And so I discovered that that song and House Pooh Corner uh, were real winners in a party situation. And, and it really helped my shy thing because I could meet not only other musicians, but I could actually meet girls. And I didn't have to figure out what to say to them. I could simply pick up a guitar and sing a song. And it was amazing that the magic of that style of, of self-representation, of being able to, to sing as a way to communicate. And I was hooked. Yeah. You've played with so many groups and people like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and, of course, Jim Messina and Michael McDonald and so many others. So does that mean your musical style is kind of ever-evolving and still is now, or was it just kind of one way or the other? No, I think the um, positive and negative of my career was that I was so influenced by the music of my big brothers that I had a, a couple of major cradle languages. In other words, the stuff you speak as a child. And one is R&B, because my brother Danny turned me on to uh, everything R&B back in the day. You know, we're talking the doo-wop groups from the 50s and the Platters and Fats Domino and Little Richard and the, the roots of rock and roll that are in that sort of the black music of that era. And then my brother Bob and the folk music thing was very strong. And so I kind of was a moving target all through my career. And it's been a, a big influence on what I'm writing and where I'm going. So I can, I can write with a guy like Babyface or I can write with, you know, Gordon Lightfoot. It doesn't really matter what direction I know what I'm doing in both situations. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. And then, I mean, some people even call you in a whole nother genre, the king of movie soundtracks. And, and it just happens that these movies, such as Caddyshack and Footloose and Top Gun, I mean, they are timeless. They will go on for generations and generations. Is that a whole different writing process for you to write for a movie versus write just a song? Yeah, writing for a movie is different because you're being delivered as a songwriter. I'm being delivered an entire emotional package. So I don't have to dig in deep into my own life and see what needs to come out for me. I can dig in deep into that fantasy life of the character and see who he is and what he needs to say. And of course, everything I write has, is in some way connected to who I am and, and my experience. I can't write from your experience, but I can work in an empathetic way to figure out who that character is and what that character needs to say or what song needs to represent him or her. Yeah. And is the writing process more fulfilling for you or is performing still much more fun? I think... It's evolved for me when I was young. The writing process was more important because of my shyness. But then as I gradually learned to perform and experience that exchange of energy that happens with an audience, I still love to perform as a sort of easier thing to do, to just get up there and, and sing whatever. And I'm lucky. I'm so grateful that, that I can sing for a living. How many people get to do that? You know, it's, what a gift. But the writing process is extremely fulfilling and extremely challenging because you have to be willing. I don't want to write pop tunes. I want to write something that matters to somebody that fills some corner of their lives. And because of that, I have to find that thing in myself. And it's like, it's like a two day therapy session. You know, <laughs> you kind of just drop in and go, okay, what needs to be said? And then as it, as it emerges, then you get the rush of the creativity of, writing something that you know you've got a big fish on the hook. Yeah. And I've asked this of other musicians because as a as a listener of music and you have a song that you really enjoy and you think, wow, it was so nice of this artist to give us this song. Do you ever think of as a, when you're writing a song and it's really coming along, it's going to be good, that this is a gift to society in a way because people are going to sing this, hum this, listen to this for decades? Yeah. Well, if you're lucky, yeah. Otherwise, no one will ever hear it. <laughs> that's, the other, that's the other side of it. But, you know, the one that I suspect you and I will talk about today is called The Great Adventure. It was a song that I wrote for the children's hospitals. And while we were writing that song, I was imagining myself as a child stuck in a hospital room for God knows how long. And you wake up in the morning, there's nobody there. And uh, what does that feel like? And how do I write a song that can lift that child's spirits and and make him feel like everything's okay for today? And um, and so we 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 knew where we wanted to go with that song. We knew what kind of song we wanted to write. There was uh, what was it called? The I'm blanking on the name of the act, but they gave us a couple of guide tunes. Like it should be like this, or it should be like that. And uh, it's going to be the best day of my life. Uh, 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 that song, American Authors. 
And that was one of the guide songs. And I thought, okay, I get it. They, so I, I get the, the emotional attitude. We're not going to imitate that song, but we're going to find a way to capture that positivity. So that's where the great adventure came from. And hopefully maybe at some point you can play it for the people just so they get a, a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we will definitely get to that and we will play it in, as part of the podcast. There was a song of yours that actually moved me when I was younger, back in as a senior in high school and then as a freshman in junior college. I was into the car show scene. I had a show truck that I put on display at various shows all over Southern California. And, and the judges required that you had a song that played on a loop over and over and over again. And the song I just loved at that time was this. Whenever I call you friend, I begin to think I Kind of the final question on the musical side before we dive into your, your great giving. We all just saw Tom Brady win the Super Bowl at 43, and athletes certainly are known for their fitness regime. And, and just hearing you perform in your 70s with the voice of a 20-year-old, how does that happen? I mean, how do you keep your voice so youthful? It's just very intriguing to me. Well, I appreciate the compliment. It takes a, a lot of work. What's really screwed me up is this COVID time because just, there's just no work. I think that the short answer to your question was divorce. That, <laughs> that in order to stay in shape, you have to keep working the muscle. Like if you're a runner, you got to run every day. And so it's the same as for a singer. And I think the reason why so many legacy artists can't really do what they used to do is because we took 20 years off waiting to become iconic. And when you take a long time off, your voice atrophies. And especially as we get older, where we don't have the same kind of fluidity in our bodies. And so this, I noticed that my voice was getting weaker and weaker. And each time we would do a online performance, there were notes I couldn't hit. And I started to get scared and I lost a bunch of notes on the high end, which is the first thing to go. And so I am working now with a vocal coach and we work every other day. And he said, you're not singing from the same place you sang from when you were a young man. And he said, I'm going to, we're going to rework how you sing the muscular approach, the shape of the, the voice. We're going to move it back to where you started. And it's, hard work. And it, you know, it's especially hard work to my ego, which seemed to think that I didn't need a coach. <laughs> but I, when I started to do the shows and I couldn't hit the high notes and I thought, well, I work out with a trainer five days a week for my body so that I can you know, be physical. I should be working out with a trainer for my voice. So I found a fellow named Ken Stacy out of LA who's highly recommended He's a, both a pop singer and a, an operatic singer. Great voice. He's in his 50s, and he's, he's got higher notes than I've ever had. So we're working together, and it's been, it's been good. It's been very challenging. It's a way of singing that I've never done before, but that's the answer to your question. Yeah, you got to keep working at it. It is interesting how the voice is a muscle, and you just got to keep after it. So really diving in now to the essence of this podcast, we had the pleasure of meeting back in 2016. We actually had lunch down in your hometown at El Encanto. And as a charity, you know, we're kind of known for building these great spaces artistically and music and athletic. And we had the idea, 
if we went to a musician and asked them to perform a benefit concert for us, we'd use the funds to build a music studio in their name. And that wasn't as easy as I thought it was. And (laughs) (laughs) in my naivety, I thought it was a slam dunk and pitched it to a lot of people and then came to meet with you and you were immediately up for it. And first, I want to thank you for that. I, I know musical artists get approached more than any profession for charity work. And you said you were in and you, no contract, let's do it, let's make it happen. And so, first of all, I want to thank you for that. And we were able to actually build two Kenny Loggins Music Studios at the Boys and Girls Club near where you live. We worked with our great friends at Notes for Notes who provide the great instruction there every day for nearly 600 kids a year. So, first of all, what is that when you saw those studios and, and knew all the kids that are growing up right around where you live, what did that really mean to you? It's just something that is part of my ethos of being an artist, which is that giving back kind of thing. And you handed me on a silver platter a, a very easy way to be a, a deeper part of this community and and help the kids. And I've been doing a lot of mentoring with young people, young singers and writers. And I found it really more fulfilling. It felt good to me to be doing that, making those connections. And I have a lot of young people in town now that I've worked with. We've done shows together, uh, not just Kenny Loggins shows, but actually youth shows that, that I sort of produce and then mentor. And then they have a, a teen talent show that was based on American Idol that they do here every year. And um, it's called Teen Star. And I've gone in and mentored with the finalists a few years now. And it's just something I really enjoy. And I watch, I love watching that talent grow and emerge. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think people are becoming more commonplace that the importance of music and arts in society, even though schools are a little lagging. So just having those two legitimate music. Yeah. And thank you for that. That was amazing. And and so many kids use those studios. Yeah. Yeah. They just love it. So I, it was just a, it was a fun experience and, and we're certainly grateful, but I want to talk about some of the other stuff. I noticed just all throughout your career, you've had this interest in children's music and children's books, and you've done your own children's books. So obviously you're still flashing back to your youth in Alhambra and find a lot of enjoyment in the youthfulness of those two opportunities, I guess. Well, especially for me, that's, I have five kids and those early years are special with every one of them. And I sang to my kids until I replaced myself with my own records, accidentally. I used to sing bedtime songs to my first three all the time. That was part of my job, especially with Bella, my my daughter, my first daughter, that, you know, bedtime was my favorite time because it's so quiet and and there's nowhere else you have to be. You're not going to answer the phone. You're not going to text anybody. I'm 100% right here. And it feels perfect. Yeah. Well, how cool for Bella to have Kenny Loggins sing her bedtime stories every night, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, the the, records, the record that I made, especially Return to Pooh Corner, my first children's record, was taken from a lot of the songs that I sang to my, to my daughter, Bella. And so there's like Love Is, the John Lennon song. That's not a song people would think of as a children's song. 
but it works amazingly well. And the, the whole thing is intended for bedtime and, you know, it just puts children to sleep. Yeah. Oh, how wonderful. And I know you've done so much in your town of Santa Barbara and the surrounding areas. In fact, one of these we had a chance to visit with you, but through your work for Toys or Tots, you helped launch Unity Shop well over 30 years ago. Tell us about that program in town. Well, the program itself was already essentially designed. It goes way back in Santa Barbara history, but Barbara Tellefson, who just recently passed away, was the primary designer of the Unity Shop. Back when I met her, it was called uh, the Council of Christmas Cheer, which she had uh, inherited from Pearl Chase. And the concept was basically that instead of giving people in need things they don't need, like a bag of groceries that they might have to cook and they may not even have a kitchen, she created an, a, 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 what we call a free store where they could come in and take essentially what they need, what they will really eat, what they really need to stay warm. If they have children, how old are the children and what do they, what do those children need? So gradually we built this thing up to where she was going to Vegas a couple of years to tell all these buying things where clothing companies would show up and you could buy seconds or you could buy, you know, trial garments and things. And she was gradually and with food items the same way. We gradually created an ability to stock shelves, and then we started leasing buildings. And one thing led to another, and now Unity is a, a strong staple in Santa Barbara where those in need can go and get exactly what they need, and they pick it out themselves, and they pick it out for their children. So no good Samaritan with a well-meaning Samaritan is going around the parents to give the children things they may or may not want. This way, the respect stays with the parents and they pick out for their own children what they know their children need. And it's been a really good uh, service now, as you said, for 30 years. And I wish the government would come and pay a little attention. We've invited them every year to show them what we're doing, but they all seem to know better. Yeah. Well, the concept is, like you said, is great because they get what they actually need. And I, I toured that store and it, not only is everything you need there, but the shopping experience and this, the, the venue itself is just, it's just a very pleasant place to be for sure. It's been beautifully done. And we owe a lot to Barbara Tellefson and her vision. And you know, Brad Paisley came to Santa Barbara and he saw Unity and recreated a model of Unity in Nashville. It's a, a slightly different setup than ours, but I hear it's doing really well. And do you ever think about, you know, all the work you do exponentially could be even larger because of the influence you give to others, other people of celebrity like Brad Paisley or whoever? Do you, you ever realize, like, I'm, I'm setting an example also for, for other artists and musicians to do the same? I don't really think about that. It's up to God and, and whatever fate is, you know, trying to work through each of us, but I, I just do what feels right to me. I just follow the feeling. I'm lucky that this, this kind of work really f makes me feel good. So I, I'm actually doing a very selfish thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no doubt it's, it, there's so much good you're doing. You've been very moved to help our planet. You even wrote the song Conviction of the Heart, which has been hailed by many as the unofficial anthem of the environmental movement. And you've long been passionate about it, long before it was fashionable to care about our Earth 
Where did that love affair of our planet come from? Uh, from being someone on it. And and I think that I've always loved uh, nature and being outside. You know, part of that is the Seattle upbringing. Pacific Northwest is still very much in my blood. You can tell by the fireplace behind me. <laughs> it's built in that fashion. Hard to say other than, you know, that's the way my family was. We we love the outdoors, and my dad was very much in tune with that. And so when that song came to me, Conviction of the Heart, was in the 89, beginning of the 90s. And I wrote it with Guy Thomas. He he brought the melody in and some of the lyric. And we wrote the song primarily in one day. And then we called it a night. And the next morning, I woke up with a melody in my head. And it was the chorus of the song we'd written the day before. And I just knew that it was. And the chorus came through as one with the earth, one with the sky, one with everything in life. I believe it will start with conviction of the heart. down to the guest house and I said, Guy, I have something to add to the song. We thought we were done, but I think this is the chorus to the song. What was interesting to me was that I wasn't sure exactly how it connected lyrically to the rest of the song. Because the rest of the song is describing a man who's kind of lost. I'd never given love with any conviction of the heart. He doesn't have a sense of connection to anything. And it took me years to figure out how that chorus connects to that verse, that that singer, that speaker in the song is discovering his connection to life. And in the process of doing that, he has this awakening that he's connected to all things. And that to me was the essence of the environmental movement that when we can see that we are all connected and not that mankind is separate from any other living thing, when we can see that we're connected, then we understand why we have to do this, why we have to save the planet. We're saving ourselves. Probably everyone's heard the planet's going to eventually be fine after we're gone. So the idea that we're saving the planet is sort of a misnomer. We're trying to save ourselves. And until we get that, that the living things on the planet are the things that are keeping us alive, we're screwed. And so when I talk to people in concert, I say, this is really, it's a spiritual awakening that is happening. It's not just another thing you have to do. It is really that until you get that you're connected, you can't really commit to the environmental movement, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well said. I, I think what you just said will resonate to a lot of people. And it's, you mentioned earlier, we were when we were talking earlier about this great other good song, The Great Adventure, which you did in partnership with the San Diego Zoo and their their network to broadcast to children's in hospitals, which we'll, you know, we'll play right now for everyone. In the wild, there's a rhythm makes you dance like a child, like a child. In the air, there's a magic that can take you anywhere. Tell us about that venture a little bit more and how did that come to be and how they approached you with that idea, which sounds kind of brilliant. 
what the song can mean for a child just sitting it alone in a hospital. Yeah. Well, it was an idea that just grew from from meeting the people at the San Diego Zoo and and talking to them and out of the conversation it was sort of like, well, what do you have that I might be able to help with? And you know, because I had originally we just brought up the idea of taking a the book that I'd written the the children's book called Footloose which is essentially taking that melody and rewriting the lyrics to be about animals in the zoo dancing together under a full moon. And it's a very fun thing. And little kids know all the words to that song. That's not the original lyric at all. So we thought, well, this is a great opportunity. Let's see if we can get the book into the San Diego Zoo gift shop. You know, that's a nice outlet. And we talked to them and they said, well, I suppose so. Maybe, maybe not. But, but we have this TV show that we're doing that we do a closed circuit TV channel in all the children's hospitals around the country and in all the Ronald McDonald houses around the world. We just basically show the care and feeding of animals, zoo TV. And I said, well, do you have a TV theme song or channel theme song? And they said, no, how about that? Let's, let me put together a song that you can use for your channel. And then the deeper I got into understanding how kids would really turn on the TV first thing in the morning. And that song becomes a theme song for them. Uh, I wrote it with Josh Bartholomew and Lisa Harrington, who wrote everything is awesome for the first Lego movie and won an Academy award with it. And they really get that vibe of something playful. And so we back before COVID, we were together in their studio in LA writing that song. And when we, when we got to the line, one of two of the lines jumped out at us. You got to be brave, like a lion, strong, like a tiger, leave the fear far behind. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It just, it seems to make so much sense to have that. And now you filled a, a great void for kids, which is tremendous. You know, you continue to lend your music talent to support again, so many other youth-based programs like make a wish, teddy bear, cancer foundation, little kids rock, with all these requests coming in and in, it must be difficult to decide. I can't say yes to everything. That process, you know, must be difficult, I guess, for you. Well, those those things that you read off there are not all all at the same time. If you have a long enough career, you can touch on a lot of different things. It is difficult. I cannot say yes to everything. I'm saying that loudly <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the more you do, the more requests you get. Sure. But I kind of go with I have a, a term that I tell my students, which is follow the fun. If you go where that spark is, that feels like it's going to be fun, you're going to end up somewhere fun. And you're going to learn something along the way, and it becomes another level of, of expression, emotional expression for you as an artist. That's something you can be proud of. And so one thing after another, one step at a time, I think I think the idea of trying to do too much, too big, too fast can be scary. But if you can just help out a little and get involved and meet meet the people there and see if, if that feels like a good place to be, see if that feels like good people to you and, and a fun thing to do. That it's actually like I said, there's a certain level of selfishness to the to the work that I've done. Because I work with great people, we try to put together really classy quality product, you know, like a show or something, and it always comes out fun. It's always a rush, and and so I just let that lead me, you know. If you dangle a, a 
a pretty enough carrot, I'll probably follow you anywhere. Yeah, yeah, but you're engaged, which I love. You know, it's not just lending something. You're you, you know, you take it to the next level where you truly immerse yourself, and I think that's that's admirable. You also have a great quote that you say every child should experience the healing power of music. Can you expand on that? Is that getting truly engaged into music or just listening and enjoying the end song? I think it is the enjoying that is the healing power. I mean, think about your own experience with music, my own experience with music. A song comes in and opens my heart. It, it touches me deeply in some way. Something physiological is happening in that moment. I remember hearing a, an artist named Tina Malia, and every song on her album was speaking to me. And I'd never even heard of her. I had no idea what this music was. But it was it just felt like I... I was resonating every time I heard it. Then I just got the feeling that I was being healed by that process. Can't prove it. Nobody was monitoring my brain waves, but I had a feeling something was shifting in me that was healing my heart. Yeah. I love the giving side that it's just kind of come, you know, a lot of people say they were influenced by someone or something or was a calling, but you're just really organically, naturally from your heart has come about. And I think everybody has that within them to some degree to get engaged. But I, th I just love the way you've just from the very, very beginning have helped out with your music. So I, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to have that experience, but I, I went through a long period of time where I worked with a therapist who was saying, well, how does that feel to you? And I had no idea what she was talking about. I even got mad at her and was yelling at her. He's <laughs> like, what do, you what do you mean by feeling? And it took a while for me to, to really allow myself to get in touch with my feelings because it's not, an, it's not a valued perception in this country. Um, it's Luckily, as an artist, I'm allowed to have feelings and because, God willing, it'll, be, it'll show up expressed in my art. And that's the kind of art that touches you and touches those around you. It's like something that is really trying to get to you. But I remember one time I did a radio show and he said, you know, I've always wanted to ask, what makes a song last forever? And I said, well, I guess songs that last forever tell the truth. And he kind of did what you did. He said, yeah, I guess so. And then he goes, but does that mean Louie Louie told the truth? <laughs> And this is long pause and people are laughing in the studio and there's long pause. And I said, well, I, I suppose to some people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely made people dance. Yeah, for sure. And what's on your, do you still have something on your musical and charity bucket list at this point in your life? Do you still, this is something I still, it's out there. I want to, I want to see, or I want to do. I'm kicking around the idea of making another Christmas record. As I see all the trees behind you. Yeah, there's never enough of that, for sure. The business people around me said, well, that's great. We can make a TV show and we can do a Christmas tour. And I said, I'm not sure I want to do a whole tour. But a show sounds interesting if we can get the right guests. And for me, it's more extending out. My publicist thinks that I could be the Andy Williams now of pop music and just sort of be the host of the show, sing a song or two, and then bring on artists that uh, that I think are really great. Sounds like a fun thing to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And is, is 
post-COVID hopefully is coming our way soon. Are we going to see you out on tour maybe this fall at some point, hopefully? That's what we're planning. It's it's just not a big tour. I'm thinking maybe a dozen shows and a Christmas kind of theme to it. And then we, we do have a few makeup shows from 2020 that are still trying to be made up. So we might have like half a dozen shows in October, God willing, if we can go to theaters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. Your music certainly generationally is timeless. I know everyone is eager to, to see you hopefully later this year. Thanks for all you do for others. And of course, the planet will definitely see you down the road. We'll put links to all of the stuff you're doing in the show notes where people can grab your books and buy your music and and links to your website. So I, I really appreciate your time. And I appreciate you five years ago saying yes to some guy who said, let's build a couple of music studios. So thank you, Kenny. I thought you were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I figured, let, well, let's see what he can do. Can he actually back this up? You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings Podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.